Today's message, we're going to be actually in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verses 17 through 27. We're finishing up chapter 1 today. So the title of today's message is David's Dirge. All right, chapter 1, verse 17. Then David composed a funeral song for Saul and Jonathan, and he commanded that it be taught to the people of Judah. It is known as the Song of the Bow, and it is recorded in the book of Jashar. So what is exactly a, a dirge? A dirge is a song of lament for the dead. And David's dirge is called the Song of the Bow. Most likely is a tribute to Jonathan. We can understand Song of the Bow in three different levels. The most surface level is that it's clearly the title of the song. And the children of Judah are to learn the song that is essentially a eulogy of Jonathan and Saul. The second level, if we go a little bit deeper, is that this title has significance. The central person being honored is Jonathan, for he actually is the one with the bow, as David is referring to. And then the third level, this is the call to learn the craft of bowmanship itself. To praise his use of the bow in a song is to praise the bow itself. You must learn the bow and learn to be the kind of person Jonathan was when he wielded the bow. Anyone who cannot tell the difference between a criminal and an inanimate object is also someone who probably cannot tell the difference between an American and an, and an Amalekite. The book of Jashar that is mentioned here, the book of Jashar would be equivalent to the United States National Archives. The book of Jashar meant the book of the upright as well. It is mentioned only one other time in Scripture. And this is in Joshua. Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 through 15. On the day of the Lord gave, on the day the Lord gave the Israelites victory over the Amorites, Joshua prayed to the Lord in front of all the people of Israel. He said, "Let the sun stand still over Gibeon, and the moon over the valley of Ajalon." So the sun stood still and the moon stayed in, the, in place until the nation of Israel was defeated, has defeated its enemies. Is this event not recorded in the book of Jashar? The sun stayed in the middle of the sky and did not set as on a normal day. There has never been a day like this one before or since when the Lord answered such a prayer. Surely the Lord fought for Israel that day. By morning the loss of Saul and Jonathan, David is expressing honor to past leaders. We know the difference between Jonathan. Jonathan and David were best friends. David served under Saul, and he respected his authority, even though Saul was drifting from God. We continue in verse 19. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How have the mighty fallen? Talking about those who have fallen, Jonathan and Saul here. And worthy leadership is the beauty of a nation. Worthy leadership is the beauty of a nation. In verse 19 is most likely a reference to the high places where worship should not have occurred. Also a reference to Mount Goboa itself. We see in Proverbs 29 Chapter 29, verse 2, when the godly are in authority, the people rejoice. 
But when the wicked are in power, they groan. We've seen that more recently. When we see more people who are, who are wicked, who, who, who have no godly sense, they don't submit themselves to God when they are authority. And this could talk, we could talk from a, from a central level of our homes. We could talk from a central level of our, of our city, of our county, or go to the nation or even the world. But when we see it all around us, when the wicked are in authority, the people groan. There is no rejoicing to be had. Continuing on in verse 20. Don't announce the news in Gath. Don't proclaim it in the streets of Ashkelon. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice and the pagans will laugh in triumph. Rejoicing of the enemy is a national humiliation. It's a national humiliation. We've seen this more lately in the last three, four years probably now, that there is more rejoicing for sin that is in the world. There is more rejoicing for when people are literally praising Satan. And it is a humiliation to our country specifically, but it's really a humiliation to God. I gave you guys... The Abraham Lincoln's 1863 National Proclamation for a Day of Humiliation, Fasting, and Prayer. Abe was, 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 he decided, this is what I gave you, but he decided that we need this. As a country, we need a day for everybody to, to, to face, to be humbled, to, to be in fasting, and to be in prayer. And he did this. And you want to know the type of president that he was? Well, this is who he was, right? And I want you guys to hold on to this and just set it on, put it in your car or set it on your, your coffee table, whatever, but just go through it. I want, I, want, I want us to read it and be familiar with it in the sense that we need to get back to this as a country and also as a church, Okay? We aren't perfect. We, 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 I won't even act like I'm perfect, okay? And we need to get back to being humble. We need to go back to humiliation. We need to get back into fasting, and we need to get back into prayer. Verse 21 says, O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fruitful fields producing offerings of grain. What is David doing here? David here is pronouncing a curse upon Mount Gilboa. He's pronouncing that curse when he says, when he says, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fruitful fear fields producing offerings of grain. He is cursing this portion of Mount Gilboa. And as you all know, I love my jokes, so I got a joke for you, okay? Y'all ready? I call it a dad joke. I'm not a dad, but I still love dad jokes, okay? Uh, what was David's least favorite soda? Anybody? Oh, there you go. Mountain Dew. Amen. Y'all got it. He says, let not dew or rain be on you. So Mountain Dew, not his friend. All right, anyways, we're going to continue on. 
To this day, the portion of the land of, of Mount Goboa called Saul's shoulder is still barren. And the second half of verse 21 here says, For the shield of the mighty heroes was defiled. The shield of Saul will no longer be anointed with oil. The shield that, that Saul once held, Saul's shield was once seen standing upright and a rallying cry for his people, for his men. But now it lay flat on the field of battle. The shield, the gleam of the shield, essentially, was no more. And it's significant to, 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 to recognize where it says, no longer anointed with oil. There's no more gleam, okay? Where there's no oil, there is no anointing. And Saul had lost that, and he had fallen. His, his, his shield has laid, fallen on the field of battle. And we continue in verse 22 here. The bow of Jonathan was powerful, and the sword of Saul did its mighty work. They shed the blood of their enemies and pierced the bodies of mighty heroes. These men were not cowards, but rather they were warriors who never backed down from a fight. And consistently, Jonathan's bow sang with a harp, string of accuracy, and blow after blow, it delivered the vengeance of God upon the enemies of Israel. But now the song was no more. We'll continue on in verse 23. How beloved and gracious were Saul and Jonathan. They were together in life and in death. It goes to show that no matter how wicked Saul had turned, his son, Jonathan, he still had a place of honor for him. And we see that David had a place of honor for Saul as well. For as we walk through this whole, this whole song, this is, we're walking through a song that, that, that David had written for, yes, Jonathan, but also Saul. He didn't leave Saul out of it. So even the wicked, we can honor. We can honor them as people. It doesn't mean we have to honor their lives or their lifestyles, right? And we see that Jonathan stayed by his father's side in life and in death. They were swifter than eagles and stronger than lions. O women of Israel, weep for Saul, for he dressed you in luxurious scarlet clothing and garments decorated with gold. In verse 23, I want to go back to that because I believe that Jonathan was beloved and, and he was pleasant. But it, it's obviously hard to see that Saul was the same way. At all that we've learned up to this point, it's hard to see that Saul was also pleasant and that he was loved. He wasn't always a tyrant, though. He, he, became, he became this as he became disobedient to his God and became a slave of man's opinion. I say this, I say, I've said it before, and I, and I continue to say it. I say all the time, I would rather much be a fool in the eyes of man than a fool in the eyes of God. Right? And that's essentially what happened here. Saul turned and he decided he cared more about man's opinion instead of God's. He turned from God and he would much rather be a fool in the eyes of God than a fool in the eyes of man. But guess what? All of this, all the opinions that everybody may have for you, the way that you're living your life uh, for Christ and being a fool for Christ's sake, all of it 
It, it, it doesn't, it, it's not going to go with you into eternity. Your relationship with Jesus will. That, that lasts longer than any relationship you'll ever have. That lasts longer than your relationship with your spouse. It lasts longer than, than a relationship you had with a best friend from, from birth. Your relationship with Jesus is far more important, and his opinion is far more important than those around you. And back to verse 24, basically what David is saying is that, that Saul benefited your lives. He actually did do something for you. Even though you may see him as evil and, and corrupt, he still did something good. You walked in glory because of his sacrifice and his leadership. Your sons drove him mad, but sing of him now. Honor him as a father who cared for his people. This is what David, he's trying to stir that, stir that honor up inside them. He's trying to get them to realize it wasn't all bad. Saul wasn't always this corrupt or, or wicked. He did do good for people in his life. It's just hard to see at the very end of it how he had turned up. And he's just saying, think kindly of him now and see how he clothed you and how he adorned you. In verse 25, Oh, how the mighty heroes have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies dead on the hills. Jonathan was the mightiest of David's mighty men. None was more faithful and none more treasured. David here, he's imploring the people to remember the good in Saul rather than the bad. In verse 26, we continue on. How I weep for you. My brother Jonathan, oh, how much I loved you, and your love for me was deep, deeper than the love of a woman. And I'll say, we talked about this came up in 1 Samuel as well, and we're going to revisit it. But there are many people, many members of, of LGBTQ who may take this as affirmation, take these verses as affirmation that Jonathan and David were living in a homosexual relationship. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. When, when looking at historical context, it is clear that there was no such relationship between the two men. None at all. That love, that love that they had had more value than any intimate friendship he had ever had. His love for Jonathan was the first in his life next to God. Not even a woman's love was as faithful as his love. This is what he's trying to say. And honestly, there is no greater love than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friend. This was a love much like the love of Christ. This is why it is so dear to him. Jonathan resembled Christ. He was Christ-alike in how their relationship was. He laid his life down. And you expect the man not to have a deep, deep love for him? No, it makes sense. Jonathan's sister, Michal, was one of David's wives, and they had a contentious relationship at best. We look at this type of love. Why was it said this way, deeper than a woman? Well, for those who, who have served in military, who, who have been on tours or anything, they would get it. They would understand it. 
A soldier's love and bond with his brothers in arms is oftentimes a stronger bond than even with one's family. You're seeing so much stuff. You're, 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 you're literally in the trenches together. You're, you're trying to figure out what to do next, and you're facing all these trials and tribulations in war, and you're seeing death right before you, before your eyes together, and you got to deal with it together. That, that, that love is going to stir in those moments. And I want to say that when we, as a church, stand against uh, decisions or policies or sin, it's not to condemn the people. I don't want people to think that, that we're just here and, and I just want to condemn all these people who are living a lifestyle of sin. No, I, I've come to realize that we are totally fine as believers, as followers of Christ. It is totally okay. And theoretically, realistically, we should be standing against decisions. We should be standing against policies and sin that is, that is defiling our nation, that is defiling our children, that is defiling our lives. We should stand against it. But that doesn't mean that we attack the person or the people themselves. Okay? Those people, regardless of where they are, regardless of how, how far left or how far right, whatever, regardless of that, they are still people and they are created in the image of God. They haven't necessarily accepted that or received that adoption into the family of Christ yet, but what we can do is we can pray for them. We can pray that, that, that they will give their hearts to the Lord. We can pray that the Lord will just grab a hold of their lives and just use them for his good. So, so, we should be standing firm. We should be standing bold in, in the truth of the living word of God and what it says when these policies, policies and decisions and, and the sin that, that is coming around to, to defile everything around us, we stand against it. But we don't take it out on the people themselves. This is people of honor. This is how we are and can be people of honor. We can still honor the people without honoring their policies, decisions, and their sin. In verse 27, it says, How are the mighty fallen, and the weapons of war perished? The weapons of war were not iron nor wood, but rather a person or persons. The weapon was not the wood of the cross. It was Christ who wielded it. It was not the iron of the nails, but the one who hung upon them. Jesus was the weapon of war against the enemies of the Lord. Oh, how the mightiest had fallen. Jonathan awoke in paradise, and Jesus awoke in Hades. Jonathan waited for rescuing, but Jesus was the rescuer himself. He held captivity captive. Jesus is the ultimate weapon of warfare in our battles. What does that look like? What does that look like today? What does that look like in your lives? Are you here today and are you thinking, oh, I never really saw it that way. I never really saw Jesus as a weapon. Well, he came, he sent his helper. We could call upon we could call upon the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There is power in the name of Jesus. So when we're in our battles, when we're in our warfare, 
we must call upon the name of Jesus. We must declare the name of Jesus over our battles, over our sin. We must renounce, we must repent from our sin. If we want revival stirring in our streets, a part of revival is repentance. We can't just come expecting God to move. We lay down at the altar and, and, and not repent for the sin and the wickedness that we have lived. But we also need to recognize the authority that we have in Jesus' name. He is the ultimate weapon of warfare in our battles. And if he is the ultimate weapon, then doesn't he deserve all the glory? And if he is the ultimate weapon, doesn't he deserve the highest of honors? And if he is the ultimate weapon, doesn't that speak to his great power? You think, we think, I'm not even going to say you, I say we, because we're in this together. We think that we can handle life all on our own, that we can handle things better and be in control of our lives over any situation, whether it's sickness, disease, uh, mental health, whatever the battle may be, finances, whatever. We think we can handle it on our own? We can't. We have to call upon Jesus. He is our ultimate weapon over all of it. And we must recognize that, and we must walk with that authority in our lives. I'll tell you guys one thing, is that this morning, I woke up, went through devotions, and I said, this lie just came over me, was that I was stressed this morning. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> I was stressed for this message. It's been eight, nine weeks since, since I've been able to, to really bring a message uh, here on a Sunday. And I was stressed. I was worried. I was like anxious, all this stuff. And, and, and I, I texted Kelsey. I, I told her. I just asked just that she'd pray. And, and she, she did. And, uh, and I felt a little weight come off, but it wasn't all of it. Because what I realized was that I was sitting here listening to worship music, doing all that stuff, and I was just listening. I wasn't necessarily giving. I wasn't surrendering. And in that last song, It Is Well With My Soul, I was standing back there, and I was like, it is well with my soul. And I was just kind of thinking, I was like, Lord, Lord, what are you trying to say? Like, what does that mean? And he says, choose joy. I just hear it so clearly, choose joy. Choose joy. And in that moment, I recognized, I knew where my message was going. And the last part of it was that Jesus is our ultimate weapons of warfare in our battles. Well, I haven't even once proclaimed the name of Jesus over this. It was a convicting moment for me. And I stand up here completely transparent and authentic with y'all because I'm not perfect. None of us are. The church isn't a museum of perfect people, but it's a hospital for the sick. If we were all perfect, we wouldn't need church. We wouldn't need Jesus, but we do. And I say that to you, I share that, share that with you this morning, just, just, just to share with you and let you know that whatever battle you're facing, it may not be the same exact battle, but you don't have to do it alone. And, and if you're in a place today where you felt like you were just lost, 
you don't know really what it means to call on Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. You, you, you don't know if you really made that decision. You, you come to church and you listen, you, you, you check the box, you do all that stuff, but you don't really, you've never really made that choice over your, over your heart to, to fully give your heart to Christ today. Well, I wanna offer that opportunity today. And we're gonna bow our heads, we're gonna close our eyes. I'm not gonna embarrass anybody. I'm not gonna ask anybody to, to, to come stand at the altar and repent of everything in our lives. But if that's you today, as with every head bowed and every eye closed, we're just gonna sit in a moment, sit in the presence of God. We're just gonna hear his voice. He's chasing after you today. He is chasing after you. He, he leaves the 99 for the one. You are that one. He wants you in his family. He wants you to call him Lord and Savior over your life. He wants you to use him as the ultimate weapon of warfare in our battles. And if that's you today, I just ask nothing, nothing crazy, no sudden movements. Just lift your head. I just want you to lift your head. Lift your head and, and look me in the eye. I want to see you. I want, I want you to be seen, more importantly. I see you. I see you. I see you. I see you today. I see you today. I see you today. Hallelujah, Father. I praise you. I give thanks to you today, Jesus, for, for your work that was done here in, in, in your house, Father. I pray over those who have made that decision today to call you Lord and Savior over their lives, Lord. I pray for continual sanctification that goes on in their lives, Lord, that they, that they will walk with the authority that comes in the name of Jesus. Every battle they face, Every, every spiritual warfare that may come their way, God, that they will just call upon you as Lord and Savior. They will call upon you as healer. They will call upon you as redeemer, Jesus. You are our ultimate healer. You are our ultimate weapon. Nothing can stand against us, Jesus. For those who have come here today and you made that decision, you are on the greatest ride of your life right now. God has seen you. He has heard you. And he wants you to know that he loves you. He loves you right where you are. You do not have to be a certain way. You don't have to live necessarily a certain life. We look at the sinner that was next to him up on the cross. He never he never did anything up until that last moment before he died of believing in Jesus. And he walked alongside, alongside Jesus into heaven. Hallelujah.